Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Whining About Herstory, the podcast where two longtime gal pals drink wine and listen then listen to her story stories. No. Well, I mean, yes, we do, but... We listen to each other because we respect each other enough to listen. And we empower each other. But we also talk about women from her story that you may not have heard about. I'm Kelly. I'm Emily. And I fucked up our intro. Yay! That's okay, because you know what? It did what it was supposed to do. It told people what they're listening to as if they didn't read the title and description. And they know we're drinking wine. Because, Which is why yay. we're fucking up. Yay! <laughs> strap in. And strap on because it's about to get real. So what are we drinking tonight, Emily? Okay. So tonight we are drinking Flying Solo. Uh, this is a Vin Rosé. Sorry for two rosés in a row. That was unplanned. It was completely unintentional. But we're fine with it. Right. And they're very different They're very roses. different roses. So um, I'm going to read the back here. Do we I... celebrate the pioneering aviators of the famous Aeropostale, who risked all to deliver the first mail from France to Barcelona in 1918, and then North Africa, and eventually even across South America. These intrepid pilots flew solo from Toulouse using our very own Tree of Moscow as a key visual reference. Domini Gaeta is flying solo to deliver you our wines of exceptional quality and value from this enterprising region of France. And uh, the tasting notes are aromatic, strawberry, fresh, and fruity which fresh and fruity i feel like if i had tinder that would be my yeah actually it would be something related to my aesthetic is swear words written in beautiful calligraphy yeah i'm i'm angry but i'm really classy about it yeah, exactly <laughs> um i don't know if i taste strawberry honestly i would describe it as dry and tart yeah which again is should be my tinder profile dry and tart right no, so the last rosé like, we it's drank. It's like the, the bar, Bitter and Poor. Oh, my God. I basically think that place was named after me. It's a shame it's a gin bar because I'm not the biggest gin no, person. it needs to be a whiskey bar. Oh. Anyway. There is a whiskey bar right next door. <laughs> but so the last rosé we drank was really like fruity. It had a tartness to it. It had an edge. But I feel like it was like a like a different kind of tart, if it, that makes sense. It was followed up with a sweetness. This is all tart it's all tart but you know all what? tart all the time when you're flying solo delivering people's mail you you get a little dry it, it's you get a little tarty this the air in the sky is very dry it dries out your skin and it dries out your wine but i mean i'm digging it yeah it's not bad not bad at all yeah i i basically picked it out because i love the bottle because it looks like a postage stamp that has a plane it says flying solo and pretty script and will uh show you a picture i didn't take a picture of this yeah you did did i out on my table how drunk am i i know we set them out on the table oh, but God, did, did i you, take did the picture <laughs> hold on hold on we set it up to take the picture uh drum roll please how drunk is emily right now i'm very drunk i didn't take the picture so we'll do that after <laughs> it's not gonna be any wine after so 
What are we cheersing to? Um, <laughs> let's cheers to two weeks in a row. Actually, like being back, back. Yes. And let, let's cheers to continuing the trend of being on top of our shit. Yes. Clink. You probably didn't hear that. We are again drinking out of our plastic fucking patriarchy wine glasses, which hold the wine, make me feel empowered, but do a terrible job of clinking yeah. the way we want. We'll, we'll, we'll glass it up next time. Here, wait. Let me clink the bottle against the table. That's thunk. Decent. Thunk. That was an empowered <laughs> thunk. thunk. <laughs> we like it hard and heavy here. So... I'm starting today, but before I do, I have a quick, like, very selfish thing I just want to shout out. Great. So we've mentioned it a little bit before. I have another podcast called Shit Show Time, where my longtime friend and I, Caleb, watch and shoot the shit about movies. And today we saw Angry Birds 2 because we knew we were going to have a lot to talk about because it's just absolutely insane. First of all, Go see this movie. It's so fucking ludicrous and has no right to be as funny as it was. But I, ha- I was laugh crying through the whole thing. It was, it was bizarre. But the real reason to see this movie, and you may have seen this floating around social media, there was a Kickstarter for a man who wanted to create an animated short about doing his daughter's hair, like her natural black afro. And, just, you know, kind of having that father-daughter bonding and, yeah. you know, embracing and loving natural, natural hair. hair. Yep. And that was the short. It got made. It got funded on Kickstarter. And that was the short before this movie. I was not expecting it. I did cry. I also laughed because I was just like, I'm in a weird emotional place today. Apparently. Apparently. I didn't even know it until I started laugh crying through this whole animated short it was beautiful. It was touching. It was so well done. And I was really happy to see it get made. And at first I was terrified. I was like, did they fucking steal this for Angry Birds? But then they got all the Kickstarter thanks at the end. If you can't see it in Angry Birds, try to find it online. It's definitely worth a watch. Everyone can relate to it. But again, representation is important. Yes. And this definitely nails it. So that's my little shout out. And I'm going to start talking about our first lady today. So I am covering Kalpana Chawla. And I looked that up and listened to it about 20 times on a pronunciation video to make sure I was saying it correctly. Good job. And I'm really excited to cover her because I was going to cover her for episode three way back because I want to cover a long time. I want to cover an Indian woman because we had gone to my Indian coworkers wedding and I want to kind of get into that area. But I want to cover someone who is a little more um, a little older, you know, and uh, so Kalpana is more recent, but I'm really excited to finally be covering her. So let's dive on in. So Kalpana was born on March 17th, 1962, <sighs> very close to your birthday. One day off in however many years. Several years. <laughs> many <laughs> years. In Karnal, India. Kalpana came from humble beginnings. Her father had fled Karnal from Shikopura, a city in the Punjab province of Pakistan due to communal riots. So I think I missed that she fled to Karnal. He fled to Karnal. Yeah. Okay. So basically, there was a bunch of tension and there were riots happening. It was not a good scene. So he peaced out. Yep. Yeah. Uh, There were only a few in his in the family who survived and made it to India. That's really sad. 
albeit he made it without any possessions. Yeah. Kalpana's father supported the family by selling coffee, candy, soaps, and performing performing odd jobs. So basically whatever he could do to make some scratch. Yeah, that's amazing. Eventually, he became a self-taught technologist and engineer, which allowed wow. him to manufacture tires. Because the tires super impressive, that man. were being made were garbage. And so he helped make like quality tires for people. Wow. Later, he married Kalpana's mother and added Kalpana to their joint 16-member family. Jesus. So this includes mothers, fathers, brothers, everyone. The, the extended family. Yes. Yeah. Still a fuck ton of people. I come from a family of three. I'm not close to my five. extended family at all. I guess so. if you like, now that I'm married, I come from a family of five. We're doing math. Bear with us. Math is hard when you're drunk Ten? and when you're sober. Ten? No, that's not right. You've got a big family. Yeah, because stupid people having children. No, I'm kidding. You're not stupid, and I love your children, Andy. <laughs> but you're making it hard. <laughs> you're making me my this math is so much harder. So, I know you push that baby out of your bajingo, but this is really hard on me. <laughs> I mean, too much math. Jared does have like three sides of his family, so right. I'm starting to get a taste of like big families and the struggles that come it's with fun. it. Fun times. So having kids, as we literally just talked yep. about is a stressful, hectic time. Plenty of things fall through. 16. Oh, my God. Plenty of things fall through the cracks. But naming your newborn usually isn't one of them. Kalpana's parents. My dad didn't, on on his birth certificate, literally until like three or four years ago, it just said, just said like baby boy nickel. Are you fucking serious? Yeah, I'm 100% serious. I thought they didn't let you leave the hospital unless you named the kid. Apparently not back when my dad was born. Oh my God. How did he get his name? Did they just decide like after they yeah, left? They, they must have just picked Michael at some point. Um, But yeah, because he had to like, I don't remember what he, he had to like, when he applied for like social security and retirement. They were like, uh, yeah, that's not the name on your birth certificate. But I'm like, how the fuck did you get like a license and that's a marriage what I was certificate? Say. There's a lot of shit you have to go through before you're applying for your retirement where you need a fucking oh, yeah. name. So he had to like go and like like request to have his like birth certificate changed or something. That is bonkers. Yeah. Oh insane. my god. So Kalpana's parents were so busy that they didn't have a chance to have her naming ceremony. In Hinduism, the traditional naming ceremony or Namkaran typically takes ba- place 12 days after the baby's birth. Okay. I didn't know that. That's I very interesting. So instead of having a naming ceremony, Kalpana's family called her by her pet name, Manto, at home. So she just had a nickname for the first several years yeah. of life. When Kalpana's aunt took her to enroll in preschool, the principal asked for her name. The aunt said they were considering a few different names, Kalpana, Giostan, and Sunaina. Obviously, we know what name it ended up, so I didn't really bother with the other pronunciations. But basically, they hadn't decided between those three (laughs) names. Nice. Uh, The principal asked Kalpana which name she liked. Any guesses? Kalpana? Have you guessed from the context clues? I know I've been very vague up until this point. So basically... um, Kalpana chose her own name. Kalpana chose her own fucking name. We talk about how important names are on this show. Kalpana took the ultimate badass move and she's like, this is my name. Suck a dick. I'm sure she did not say that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm paraphrasing. 
And uh, her name means imagination. Oh, I like that. Very sweet. So Kalpana grew up fascinated with aircraft in the sky. Her family would sleep on the roof of their home in the summer because it was so fucking hot. And Kalpana would stare up at the stars. She would also visit the local flying club near her house and watch the planes with her father, drawing pictures of them afterwards. She even got to ride in a pushpak and a glider. So a pushpak is like what you imagine a small, like, one or two person aircraft to be. Yeah. Two person. She was not flying the plane. And then a a glider is just like, it catches the wind. Yep. When planes from the club would fly over her house, she'd wave at them. So she's initially growing up with a love of... Planes. Planes, aircraft, and like the sky and the stars. She's very fascinated. Quote, I think that's really my closest link to aerospace engineering that I can dig deep down and find out. Out there, she said in an interview. Growing up, Kalpana rejected a lot of traditional feminine practices. She cut her hair short, leg asp, didn't wear makeup, leg asp, refused to cook or do housework, fucking relate. No one likes to do that. And was often found wearing... <gasps> pants. Pants! But she had her pants permit, so it was fine. We're okay. We're okay. She's got her pants fine. permit. Kalpana's father was always hustling, which instilled a strong worth ethic in her. Kalpana was... Every day I'm hustling. Every day I'm hustling, hustling. Gotta work, work, work. Why you gotta work, work, work? I don't know that song, song, song. I just know it's about work. Um, so she was the youngest of four, three girls and one boy. The daughters were raised to be obedient, as was the custom at the time. However, Kalpana's mother was very supportive of her daughters. So Kalpana's oldest sister, who was a good student, actually went to college, which was soups taboo wow, at the time. That's, that's awesome. Because most women graduate high school and then, like, got married and had yeah. children. Because that was seen as what was the important thing. Why would you waste your time with an education you should be marrying and pumping out kids. Kalpana would later follow in her footsteps, foreshadowing. Because this story could have ended with her just having yeah. a very traditional life. <laughs> in 1976, Kalpana graduated from the Tagore School. She excelled in school and went on to earn her Bachelor of Engineering degree in Aeronautical Engineering from Punjab Engineering wow. College in Chandigarh, India. I am so sorry for that poor pronunciation. Her family supported her educational pursuits, though her father needed some convincing as this was all very unusual for a woman at the time. Let's remember, like nowadays, a woman getting her degree in engineering is not not that that far fetched. At this time in the cultural climate, this was like, what? Yeah, it was very odd. She was the only woman in the aeronautical engineering program and became the first woman to graduate with that degree in the college's history. Wow. Just to show how unusual that was. It hadn't been done. Yeah, that's insane. Kalpana continued her education in the United States, earning her master's in aerospace engineering from the University of Texas, Arlington in 1984. Then she earned her master's of science in mechanical engineering in 1986. And finally, her PhD in aerospace engineering in 1988 from the University of Colorado. So she is rolling in degrees. Yeah. She is the smartest person in the universe. (laughs) (laughs) She's got like... 
two masters and a PhD. She's master, master, Dr. Kalpana Chawla. All wow, right. That's impressive. She also had a certificated flight instructor's license and her commercials pilot's so she also license. flew. While she's earning all of these fucking degrees, she's like, I'm going to learn how to fly planes. Spare time. Yeah. Spare time. You know, I just, it's it's good to have a hobby. You know, between between church and school, you got to do something for yourself. I'm making her Minnesotan, and I don't know why I'm doing that. <laughs> so while she's accomplishing all of this, she also married Jean-Pierre Harrison in 1983. So within the span of a few years, she's got like 80 fucking degrees, pilot's licenses, and she's married. She has accomplished more in her life than I think I ever could. During her education, Kalpana always pushed herself to do better and would not settle for less than perfection, having gained her incredible work ethic from watching her father hustle for so many years. Because I mentioned he like became an engineer and everything. That wasn't until later. Like he was already supporting a family selling soap and candy and whatnot. And then he kind of like hit his stride. Yeah, that's insane. So this next section is titled To Infinity and Beyond. Parentheses, NASA. Hey, NASA. We're, we're getting spacey. The first time Kalpana began imagining the possibility of space travel was when she was 11, when she saw the Viking le- lander on Mars in the 1980s. This opened up a whole wow. new world for Kalpana, and it's no surprise she began working at NASA's Ames Research Center in California, researching computational fluid dynamics on vertical and short takeoff and landing concepts. Didn't my lady work at- Hold on. Keep talking. I'm going to look okay. up her name. <laughs> Then, in 1993, she became vice president and research scientist of Overset Methods, Inc., specializing in simulation of moving multiple body problems. Holy fuck. There, she was able to develop and implement efficient techniques to perform aerodynamic optimization, which is basically maximizing the performance of any given body like a wing by changing its shape. So it's basically optimizing an aircraft for optimal travel. In 1991, the year of our birth, Galpana had become a naturalized U.S. citizen and applied for the NASA Astronaut Corps, which is basically astronaut school. Catherine Johnson. I think she also worked at Ames. I think she did. That's what I was trying. (laughs) What is her name? Catherine Johnson, if you don't remember, is the mathematical genius who helped. Oh, God. Not Neil Armstrong. Nope. The other one. Glenn, Glenn something. Glenn something. Fuck. Hold on. The story I'm, was not about him, but she no. basically helped him in the Apollo 11 mission, I right? I'm trying to look it up. John Glenn. John Glenn. John that's Glenn. it. You know, go listen to our episode about episode Catherine six. Johnson. Episode six. Episode six, if you want to know what we're talking about. But I'm pretty sure she worked at Ames. Becoming an astronaut was obviously an intensive pursuit, leaving her no time to visit her family in India. The last time she visited them was in 1991. Aww. In 1995, she joined the Corps and in 1996 was chosen for her first flight into space. Okay. So the next, sec- next section, first space mission. 
For her first mission, Kalpana was part of a six-astronaut crew that flew the space shuttle Columbia flight STS-87 with the goal of performing two extravehicular activities, or EVAs, which is basically going outside of the spacecraft to do stuff in space. Oh, okay. Um, and deploying the Spartan 201 experiment, which was meant to use telescopes to study the sun. The descriptions of all of this were a lot more detailed than I'm writing, but I did not understand any of it so going out into space and studying the sun and a bunch of other shit uh including studying how weightlessness affected different physical processes that's interesting i mean can you have you ever seen those interviews where an astronaut comes back from space and they go to like put their water cup down into nothing and they drop it because they're used to just letting well, something like go when we did uh valentina tereshkova remember her daughter was studied because she was the daughter of two astronauts yes and like we wa- don't they know wanted what to see happens. how it affected yeah we don't know how space affects you. I remembered somebody's name without looking oh. her up and it was a russian name that was a tough name and she's still alive she is so this mission marked a series of firsts this was the first time that an EVA was por- performed from porned. That's what you said. No, I know, and I'm just kind of ashamed of myself. Freudian, like, is this what Freudian one does slip? to me? <laughs> do I need to go home and take care of some business? I do. Okay, yeah, that's in. Oh, that's we're getting personal. All right. Well, no, it's just funny because I'm I'm covering a psychologist. <laughs> And she she proved that when someone accidentally says porn, she's super horny and needs to go take care of business. And she was right. <laughs> I'm just going to leave the room. <laughs> this is going somewhere weird. Okay. Let me start this over. This was the first time that an EVA was performed from the Columbia. It also marked the first EVA conducted by a Japanese astronaut, Takao Doi. Finally, with Kalpana acting as a mission specialist, she was the first Indian woman in space. Boom. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. And here's the thing. I love all of the firsts of space travel because it's so new. It's like one mission. We got like 80 billion first time accomplishments. (laughs) It's amazing. So the team shot into space on November 19th, 1997, traveling over 6.5 million miles, orbiting the Earth 252 times, and logging over 376 hours and 34 minutes in space. This was Columbia's 24th flight. Kalpana would later remark, quote, an hour and a half to travel around the Earth once. Wow. My goodness, how small this planet really is. And I feel like that's such a consistency. When people come back from space, they're like, everything is so small. It really makes you realize how insignificant some of the shit we worry about is, you know? On the mission, Kalpana deployed the Spartan satellite. Unfortunately, it malfunctioned, which required two other astronauts to leave the craft on a spacewalk to recapture the satellite. So the satellite just kind of fucked off and did its own thing, and they had to rein it back in, that which sucks. is me at the bar when I get right? too drunk. Emily, honey, that's, that's stop making right friends now. in like, the Emily, bathroom. Come on. <laughs> Emily, stop making friends in the bathroom. NASA investigated the incident for five months and identified that it was an error in the software that caused the issue, not Kalpana. 
but they have to know. Kalpana also operated Columbia's robot arm during the mission. That sounds fun. It's just, that's a cool thing. Uh, During the mission, Kalpana said, quote, you are just your intelligence, which I think is kind of, that's cool. I like that. The crew returned safely to Earth after their mission on December 5th, 1997. 1997, not 1997th. The 1997th year of Earth. So this next section, the 28th flight. In 2001, Kalpana was sec- selected no, for her. Oh, I just realized where this is going. Oh, here's the thing. There are so many people. The second I said Columbia, who just turned this off. Well, I was like thinking about it, but then I was like, no, because you said it was the 12th flight of Columbia. So I was like 24th. Or 24th. I was like, no, it's fine. It's not that one. But now that you're like, she got recently. God damn it. I know. So. American listeners, you know where this is going. Non-American listeners, just may or may not. <laughs> hold your wine close. In 2001, Kalpana was selected for her second mission to space as a mission specialist for the STS-107, once again, the space shuttle Columbia. This would be its 28th flight. The purpose of this mission was to perform a variety of experiments in space that were mostly too fancy for me to understand, except for the experiment designed by students from Glenn Waverley Secondary College in Victoria, Australia, to test how zero gravity affected the web formation of garden orb spiders. That actually sounds really interesting. I want to know what happened. Like, have you ever seen... We know what happened. Well, shush. (laughs) Have you ever seen that video of like... It's like a faux documentary of how different drugs affect spiders and how the pot spider like formed a hammock and just pieced out and then yeah. died in the winter. Yeah. <laughs> the, the crack spider capped someone in the ass. <laughs> I love that video. So the emi- the mission experienced several delays due to scheduling issues and technical difficulties, such as finding cracks in the shuttle engine flow liners. I don't know what those are, but cracks in anything that's being shot off into space are bad news. Finally, on January 16th, 2003, Kalpana boarded Columbia with her six crew members, Commander Rick D. Husband, Pilot William C. McCool, who has, not to be punny, but the coolest fucking name, (laughs) Payload Commander Michael P. Anderson, Payload Specialist Ilan Ramon, who was the first Israeli astronaut, Mission Specialist David M. Brown, and Mission Specialist Laurel Blair Salton Clark. As Columbia launched into space, a piece of foam insulation broke from the shuttle's external tank and hit the left wing of the orbiter. Damage like this had occurred before, but engineers suspected the damage could have been more serious. NASA managers performed a limited investigation saying that the crew couldn't fix the problem anyway. So basically, they're like, there's nothing we can do about it, regardless of what the situation is. Engineers made three requests for the Department of Defense to conduct imaging on the shuttle in orbit to examine the damage and determine its severity. So they're like, let's figure out what the situation is. NASA management wouldn't honor the request and actually intervene to stop the Department of Defense from helping. What? They said no? They stopped I the Department of didn't Defense. didn't know that. I learned so much about this from, and I didn't get too much into it because that's not what the story is about and I just could not deal with it emotionally. 
The crew successfully reached space and performed over 80 experiments, which I was like, that's a fuck ton. But at the same time, it's not like you can go to space on a whim. You got to take advantage of it while you're up there. While aboard Columbia, Kalpana had a conversation with the prime minister of India. He said, quote, we are proud of you. Every single one of us. <laughs> you know why I'm going first today. There is an eight-minute video of the full conversation, but I couldn't even get through the first minute. No, I wouldn't. That was nope. the one quote I pulled, and I had to stop. I recommend you watch it, though. It's really cool, but I, I couldn't handle it. When Columbia re-entered the Earth's atmosphere on February 1st, 2003... Well, the worst thing is they knew. They knew what was... Like, I don't know if the crew knew, but NASA knew. I am going to get into it. So when they re-entered the Earth's atmosphere on February 1st, 2003, the damage from the foam block allowed hot atmospheric gases to penetrate the damaged wing and destroy its internal structure. The shuttle became unstable and broke apart. The shuttle essentially disintegrated over Texas, killing all seven crew members. The catastrophic re-entry was broadcasted all over the world. And I remember I was watching TV that morning and it cut out of what I was watching and just showed this bright light shooting through the sky with no context. Yeah. And I was I was so confused. And I watched it for a few minutes and then switched to something else because I had no idea what was going on. And now I'm just like, oh my God. Yeah. I can't believe I just dismissed that. But like when you're a kid, you don't how know. are you supposed to know? Um, Kalpana's remains were identified and she was cremated shit, really? and scattered at Zion National Park in Utah as per her wishes. I think they were able to identify all seven crew members. I don't know quite That's impressive how. because I don't even think they recovered the whole spacecraft. Right. I, I don't and know so how that works. They're strapped in. So maybe they were found where like the main body was found, like of the ship was found. Yeah. So uh, Kalpana's brother, her only brother, Sanjay, said of her, quote, To me, my sister is not dead. She is immortal. Isn't that what a star is? She is a permanent star in the sky. She will always be up there where she belongs. This was a really hard story yeah. for me to get through. I had to stop researching like 80 times just so I could like cry it out yeah, this is ruth so kokerberg's all over again um in 2013 retired nasa official wayne hale recalled that the or what the director of mission operations john c harpold shared with him before the disaster which hale said captured the mindset of many at nasa including the astronauts so this is kind of okay. the mindset behind everything that i just told you quote you know there is nothing we can do about the damage to the thermal protection system. If it had been damaged, it's probably better not to know. I think the crew would rather not know. Don't you think it would be better for them to have a happy, successful flight and die unexpectedly during entry than to stay in orbit knowing that there was nothing to be done until the air ran out? You don't know that. The Department of Defense could have helped you. Well, they were right, though. Like... I, th I think they were trying to keep it under wraps so that... And getting the government involved would... No one was just yeah. sitting there waiting for this inevitable disaster. So NASA knew. NASA knew. Or they probably knew. You know, like, yeah. they were like, we don't know, but we kind of know. 
And they're not going to tell the astronaut. Basically, basically, upon reentry, they're either going to make it or they're not. Yeah, but let's let them have a happy flight up until that point. And here's the thing. I I agree. I would much rather yeah. unexpectedly die in reentry than just orbit the Earth slowly running out of air. If you if you accept the fact that nothing could have been done, nothing could have been repaired in space yeah. or at any and point. And your options were slowly suffocate or, or potentially die on reentry. I think I would have taken the potentially die on I just... And here's the thing. It's still super heartbreaking, but I, f- I get it. I feel like I'm not in a position to comment, but I I understand why people felt that way. And it sounds like that was kind of the mentality around NASA. If something well, horrible is NASA going to and go the wrong, astronauts, you, said. you don't want to fucking know. You don't want to know if it's inevitable. Right. But it's still just so heartbreaking. Okay. Legacy. Kalpa Nachawala has been posthumously awarded the NASA Space Flight Medal, the NASA Distinguished Service Medal, the Defense Distinguished Service Medal, the Congressional Space Medal of Honor. She's been awarded a fuck ton of stuff. On February 5th, just a few days after the Columbia disaster, the Prime Minister of India declared that all Indian meteorological satellites or METSAT would now be renamed Kalpana. Um, and the, fir- the first satellite in this series was launched not that long, I think maybe a few years, and it was named Kalpana 1. Aww. So many streets, buildings, a scholarship, planetarium, and even an asteroid have been named after Kalpana. There's actually an asteroid named after each member of the Columbia crew. Like, I, there, were, there has been so much stuff named after her, I couldn't even list it all out. That's great, though. Kalpana Chawla is still considered a national hero of India. And one of the reasons I want to cover her is I only knew her in context of the horrible way she died of the Columbia disaster because everyone, um, Americans are very familiar with this. You know, like I remember me and my class were growing up trying to come to terms with what the fuck happened and why it happened. We've had a few things like that for our generation. Oh, my God. It's not, we're not going to get into that. No, but you know, I, so I went to a Catholic school and, um, sometimes the priest would come into our classrooms for a period and we would just get to ask questions. And normally it was like trying to break the system. Like if Hitler was truly sorry before he killed himself, could he get into heaven? Just dumb kid shit like that. But we had a very serious conversation about this and it was very important because we're kids and we're trying to wrap our heads around you know, com- that horrible could comprehending God and his infinite power and how this could happen. And I'm not very religious anymore. But at the time, this was the this was bizarre. Like, how could something like this happen? Yeah. And I remember the priest said something like these these astronauts worked their whole lives towards this goal. They got to see stuff that we can't even imagine. And they died doing what they loved, what they were passionate about. And we have to find some kind of comfort in that. And that's always stuck with me. But I was so happy to learn about her life and everything that led all her achievements. Yeah, that's that was leading awesome. up to this I because thank you for doing that. she's more than just the Columbia disaster. All all seven crew members are more than the Columbia disaster. I'm only covering one right now. There was another woman on the crew and I might cover her in the future. This is a Herstory podcast. I'm obviously not gonna cover the guys, but this was a really hard story for me to get through. I really struggled. Um, 
just knowing how it ended, but I'm happy I know now. I'm happy I know who Kalpana Chawla is. Yeah, that was a beautiful story. So I feel really bad. Like mine's mine's a lot more like technical. There's not a lot about her life. It, it was really weird. I'll I'll get into it when I get into my story. Well, and like we said in the last episode, we had two stories lined up, and each of us had a sad story and a happy story. And I'd we say, purposely I wouldn't, I wouldn't had the mine, happy stories at I'd the say, end. I wouldn't really say mine's happy. Mine's just kind of neutral. Okay, happier than mine though. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's all we need right now. I think like anything would be. <laughs> it was. <sighs> And like I said, I didn't get too much into the Columbia disaster and the investigation, the politics oh, behind no, it, because that's not what this story is about. This is about Kalpana, not how she was, died. I, but it I, was I, this was a good story. Yeah. So cheers, Kalpana. Thank you. Think. Thunk. <laughs> a little Thunk? plastic. Yeah, that's thing. What really what it is. My laptop died, so I'm I'm going back to like episode one, two, and three, and doing this on my cell phone. I forgot you used to do that because I immediately brought in my laptop and you're on your phone now. I'm like, I feel like I'm working too hard. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm covering um, Melanie Klein. Um, and this is really in my field. This is, she's a psychoanalyst. Because you have your bachelor's in psychology. Bachelor's so you psychology. know what it means when I say porn on accident. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and this is someone I never learned about. It makes me kind of angry. Okay. So born the fourth and final child of Jewish parents Moriz and Lubusa Reyes, Melanie would spend most of her early life in Vienna, Austria. Her childhood was a relatively happy, although there was often a lack of affection in her family. In her experience, it was her mother who ran the household and her father who was her intellectual mentor. So that's probably pretty common. I was going to say that seems like a typical um, gender dynamic this is late 1800s i think not typical traditional yeah late 1800s i I didn't for some reason put her birth date two of her siblings died at young ages and this has been said to have contributed to the depression that melanie struggled with for her entire life her older sister sedon sedon died at the age of eight of tuberculosis after she had taught Klein to read and do arithmetic, and the two sisters had been very close prior to her death. Oh, God. Um, her father, Morris, also died um, when Klein was only 18. So she suffered two siblings dying, and then her father died when she was still relatively young. Can we take a break so I can just cry out my feelings right, right now? <laughs> At the age of 21, she married industrial chemist Arthur Klein. Arthur was a friend of her brother and her mother's second cousin. Melanie and Arthur had three children. Melita, Hans, and er- Eric, spelled E-R-I-C-H. I kind of like that. He's so he's so he's, special, but he never found his name on a pin at a tourist trap. Yeah, I don't either. Poor don't fucker. Yeah, you have a unique spelling of your name with the E-Y at the end. Right. Thanks, parents. I always see people's names spelled as Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, and I'm like, that's not right. I know. That's what I should do. I'm like, At least you're not named Caitlin. There are 80 trillion ways to spell Caitlin. It's ridiculous. Anyways, uh, so she had the three children. Melanie, as I said before, suffered from clinical depression, and these pregnancies took quite a toll on her. Oh, God. Can you imagine? I'd be terrified to get pregnant because I'm already a disaster. Oh, yeah. With my anxiety and stuff, there's there's no way. Um. This, in, conjun- in conjunction with an unhappy marriage, soon led Melanie to seek out means of treatment. Shortly after her family moved to Budapest in 1910, Melanie began a course of therapy with psychoanalyst Sandor Fer- Ferencis. 
Don't ask me. Good <laughs> for her, though, because this is a time where you don't talk about mental right, 1910. health. Right, 1910. And she's yeah. like, I don't feel right. This is like help. This is like prime Freud. True, true. This was a big deal at the time. It was during their time together that Melanie expressed an interest in the study of psychoanalysis. Forensi encouraged her, and Melanie began her studies by the simple observation of her own children. Um, until this point, very minimal documentation existed on the topic of psychoanalysis concerning children. Some theories even said that it wasn't possible. This reminds me of Big Bang Theory and how Leonard's mother used him as an experiment. Oh, God, I went to camp and my cabin was labeled control group. Yeah. Great. I lost my point. Sorry. Uh Oh, yeah. So children. Some people said they couldn't be psychoanalyzed, but Melanie was working on it. Melanie seized the opportunity by developing her play technique, comparable to that of free association and adult psychoanalysis. Melanie's play technique sought to interpret the unconscious meaning behind the play and interaction of children. And it's actually still a technique that's used today. That's cool. Um, she, she mostly worked with Eric, her youngest, and began familiarizing herself with Freud's On Dreams in 1914. That was one of his major works on dreams. and like What's, what's um, that? It has to do a lot with psychoanalysis and like interpreting dreams. Oh, okay. She did end up meeting Freud in Budapest at a like psych convention typey thing psych i'm sure conference. it wasn't you know that back then she also pe- published her first paper that same year called the development of the child she became a member of the hungarian psychoanalytic society in 1919 but had to leave hungary shortly thereafter due to the anti-semitism fuck man can we just stop shitting on everyone Right. In 1921, in the wake of the dissolving marriage, Melanie and her children moved to Berlin, where she joined the Berlin Psychoanalytic Society under the tutelage of Carl Abraham. Although Abraham supported her pioneering work with children, neither Melanie nor her ideas received much support in Berlin. As a divorced woman whose academic qualifications did not even include a bachelor's degree, Melanie was was a visible sore thumb within a profession dominated by male physicians. So not only is she a woman in a male-dominated field, but she doesn't, she doesn't have, have the any paperwork. Qualifications. Which, can I just say, like, as someone with a college degree, it kind of means nothing. Like, you can be perfectly capable well, especially back then. and intellectual and educated without the fucking paperwork, okay? Right. Especially back then when... It wasn't as big of a thing. Yeah, well, especially when tons of people couldn't get access to higher right. education for being a woman or a person of color or a billion other fuck up, fucked up reasons. Despite this impediment, Melanie Melanie persisted. Her up and coming work possessed a strong influence on the developing theories and techniques of psychoanalysis, particularly in Great Britain. Contri- my next section is contributions. I love that. And then I kind of broke it down by analysis. Like I said, this it's a lot more about like her work than about her. Because the weird thing is, in all of the different things I read, not a lot talks about her. Like about I literally had to Google how she died because none of the articles mentioned it. That's crazy. Like not even Wikipedia. I will say, like, it's all about what she did, not who she was. It's about her accomplishments. But it's like, I want both. Right. I, wa- I want to know the story of the person who did this stuff. I mean, it's still really impressive, which is why I'm still covering her. Yeah. Because, like I said, I never heard of her in my classes. 
But it's annoying that they don't even talk about like how she died or, you know, maybe her life after like when she retired or like I had to Google how she died like right. separately. There, that annoyed there's no, me. There's no uh, personal element right. to it. Except I, about her early life. I will say I love that she's studying children, especially at a time when no one was because right. children and their emotional and mental and physical health is so often neglected because we don't really see them as people and as someone who worked with children for 13 years i get it i I mean it's a lot better now than it was then i commonly referred to like kids as like when they're going from infancy to toddlerhood i'm like oh they're like kind of a person now because they have a personality and you know they're in they're interacting engaging but everything matters and they all have a they have a personality from the second they're born to the second they die like it's insane it is and the fact that no one is concerned about the earliest development of humans come on a little man. concerning right? they don't know shit exists for like six months you can put your hand over it and they're like i don't know that's there yeah that's that's object permanence yeah can i do that with my depression please no <laughs> <laughs> you might be able to do it with your dogs, though. <laughs> they won't let me forget they're there. They're no, very I meant, like, imposing. You, you can see how well you're, like, how how smart your dog is by seeing how well they, they handle object permanence. By usually you show them, like, a treat or something, and then you hide it under a blanket. And if they figure out that it's still there under the blanket, your dog's Oh, my smarter. dogs know because they're pigs. <laughs> my little piggets. Or putting the blanket over them and seeing if they can get out. Dora used to be really bad at that when she was little because she'd get tangled and then she'd just give Aww. up and lay down. She'd be like, nope, I'm stuck. It was really cute. Anyways. Enough so about her, dogs. Her contributions. <laughs> Melanie was one of the first, as I said, to use traditional psychoanalysis with young children. She was innovative in, her, in both of her techniques and her theories on infant development, one of which was working with children using toys, like I said, which is still used. Um, she established a high influential training program in psychoanalysis, which is great. By observing and analyzing the play and interactions of children, Melanie built onto the work of Freud's unconscious mind. Her dive into the unconscious mind of the infant yielded the findings of, of the early Oedipus complex, as well as the <laughs> developmental roots of the superego. For anyone who doesn't know... And Kelly, maybe you should explain this because you're the psychologist. No, go ahead. The Oedipus complex is wanting to fuck your mother and kill your father. It's more so the wanting to fuck your mother part. But technically, the entire story of Oedipus is, yeah, he kills his dad and then sleeps with his mom. Yep. It's a whole Greek Greek thing. It's fucked. It's all Greek to me. They think we're going downhill as a society now that was better in the olden days. They don't even fucking know, man. So then, so I talked briefly about the superego. So Freud believed we have like three selves, the id, the ego, and the superego. And basically, let's see if I can actually remember this. You're in Wisconsin. There's bars everywhere. There's cheese everywhere. (laughs) Like, I think I have it in here somewhere. Hold on. Let me, Emily, distraction. (laughs) Let me paint you a picture of Wisconsin. The place where light doesn't touch. Okay, so the id is the unconscious mind, the ego is like the experiencing self, and the superego is like the mediator between the two. Okay. I'm pretty sure that's right. If not, I'll correct myself in the next episode. So she, you know, so she Oedipus complex and then the developmental roots of the superego because Freud said that children don't have a superego. 
Like it was it was a thing. But again, they don't weren't they though. They weren't psychoanalyzing children. How can you say that they don't have a super ego if you're not even bothering to check? Right. Melanie's theoretical work incorporates Freud's belief in the existence of the death pulsation. I'll explain that in a second. Okay. She saw my inquisitive look <laughs> and was like, um, stop. Reflecting. Oh, actually, it's, uh, apparently I, re- I thought it was later, but I explain it right here. Um, it's the fact that all the fact that they feel all living organisms are inherently drawn toward an inorganic state and therefore in an unspecified sense contain a drive towards death. Can you explain that in a way that my drunk ass brain can comprehend? Um, basically, we're all driven toward death. Well, yeah, it happens whether we want it or not. But they're saying there's like an unconscious like drive to need it. Need for like, death? Almost, yeah. A need for an end? So this will be fun for you. In psychological terms, eros, which is the life pulsation or the postulated sustaining and uniting principle of life, is thereby presumed to have a companion force, thanatos, which is the death pulsation. So there are these two, maybe not conflicting, but... Kind of conflicting. Kind of conflicting. So in humans, there's a drive towards an end and there's a drive towards continuation. Yep. Yeah, basically, they they explain Thanatos as a, a thing that seeks to terminate and disintegrate life. It's like Thanos. I was going to say, like, is this Avengers Endgame? Um, both Freud and Melanie regarded these biomental forces as the foundations of the psyche. These primary unconscious forces whose mental matrix, matrix is the id, the ego, and the superego, which were shorthand terms referring to the high, highly complex and mostly uncharted psychodynamic operations. So basically, they were using the id, the ego, and the superego as shorthand for more complex mechanics. Okay. Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. So, child analysis. I'm excited for this. So Freud, if people didn't know, drew his ideas concerning children mostly from working with adults. Freud very rarely worked with children. That's probably a good thing, considering he thought everyone wanted to bone their moms. There's another psychologist I'm covering later that has to do, because Freud thought um, women had penis envy. So there's a woman psychologist that basically like answers Freud on that. The only thing I envy about the penis is the ease of peeing in the woods. Like, Uh, I wish I could pee in the woods without having to worry about getting my pants Get a shiwi. No, because then I have to spend money. It's right? so and then you have to wash to it. Woman. You know, anyways, there's, no, there's it, taxes it. on menstrual products, and I have We're to pay to pee in that. the woods. Okay, back to Freud. Melanie was innovative in working directly with children, unlike Freud. She worked with uh, children often as young as two years old. So she wasn't working with like infant infants. Right, but because toddlers. they can't play with toys. <laughs> Melanie saw children's play as their primary mode of emotional communication. While observing children play with toys such as dolls, animals, plasticine, pencil, and paper, she documented their activities and interactions and then attempted to interpret the unconscious meaning behind their play. Following Freud, she emphasized the significant role that parental figures play in a child's fantasy life and considered that the timing of Freud's Oedipus complex was incorrect. Contradicting Freud, she concluded that the superego was present from birth. So she stepped into Freud as a woman without a degree. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Bring it, baby. She steps to Freud's daughter at some point, too. It's, Ooh, it's great. This is getting generational. Because I think at this point, Freud is fairly old. 
He's creaking uh, when he walks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. After exploring the ultra-aggressive fantasies of hate, envy, and greed in very young and disturbed children, Melanie proposed a model of the human psyche that linked significant oscillations of state with the postulation of Eros or Thanatos pulsations. Life so and the death. life and death pulsations. Yep. Okay. She named the state of the psyche in which su- the, the sustaining principle of life is in the domination is in the domination the depressi- the we're too drunk for this you know you are tackling these like advanced psychological concepts beautifully especially considering that we're two bottles of wine right. in tonight okay so she named the state of the psyche in which the sustaining principle of life is the domination the depressive position that makes no sense I was going to say, isn't domination the depressive position? I think they're saying in which the life force is being like, the will to live is being depressed by the death pulsation. Fuck yeah, man. Um, (laughs) This is considered by many to be her greatest contribution to psychoanalytic thought. She later developed her ideas about an earlier development psychological stage corresponding to the disintegrating tendency of life, which she called the paranoid schizoid position. Yeah, that would make sense. (laughs) Okay. Melanie's insistence on regarding aggression as an important force in its own right when ana- anal- analyzing, 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 analyzing children b- brought her into conflict with Freud's daughter, Anna Freud, who I'll cover later because she's another person I never really heard about. Yeah. She's overshadowed by her father's. I never knew Freud had kids. He might have only had the one. I don't know. I never knew um, Freud fucked, even though that's all he talked about. Right. That's why you probably thought he never did. Anyways. <laughs> I kind of um, hoped he didn't. <laughs> so her analysis on children brought her into conflict with Anna Freud, who was one of the other prominent child psychotherapists in continental Europe, but who moved to London in 1938, where Melanie had been working for several years. In fact, one article I read s- stated that um, Anna was one of the people that held the position that children could not be psychoanalyzed. But, I don't agree But she might that. have... She must have changed her mind later because she becomes like she she does contribute to child psychology at some point okay but yeah so they're in contention many controversy arose from this conflict and these are often referred to as the as the controversial discussions so basically a good (laughs) chunk of of the controversial discussions are regarding aggression and if it's important or not in childhood I love that. Such a classy way to just have this like academic disagreement. The controversial discussions. (laughs) This is what it says. They weren't screaming at each other. Battles were played out between the two sides, each presenting scientific papers, working out their respective positions and where they differed all during wartime Britain. Holy fuck. This is World War II again. Yeah, this would be World War II. Uh, a compromise was eventually reached whereby three distinct training groups were formed within the British psycho and psychoanalytic society with Anna Freud's influence remain remaining largely predominant in the U.S. There's this whole thing called like the Freudian pel- pendulum that I'm not going to get into, but it's a thing in psychoanalysis. So I could see that. Is it because of her name was the bigger one? No. With Freud? No. Well, I mean, Freud in general was kind of the bigger deal. Yeah. Um, and so I think it was probably just they were like, eh, we know Freud's ideas. We're going to stick with them. Let's, yeah. Yeah. So um, so the British, like I said, they, it, the British an- Psychoanalytical Society broke into three separate divisions, one being the Kleinian, 
Freudian and independent. And basically, these were all splits off of the original Freudian. So it was basically like Freudian psychoanalysis and then the branches of Freudian psychoanalysis. Okay. Which included a second Freudian. This reminds me of the split of like Christianity, how like Catholicism, Lutheranism, Presbyterian, like it, it, it's all the same thing, but differs slightly on weird things. Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah. no, but that happens totally actually different. a lot in psychology. Because there's everywhere. like the main, what they call the main pillars of society. And I actually just learned from listening to the deadly, no, not the dead lady show. But listen to them anyway. No, you should. They're really good. But that's not the podcast that I listened to about the psych lady. And I almost covered her, but then I was like, I feel like I'd be uh, just listening to the same person, you know, like... Copying it. Exactly. It's called What's Her Name? And they did the psychoanalyst Sabina Spielrein, who actually helped Jung and Freud develop most of their ideas, and no one knows who she is. And the reason she's so interesting, I know I'm going like way off topic, but the reason she's so interesting is because when you look at psychology, the two pillars of psychology are Jung and Freud, and they're seen to have conflicting ideas, but both of their ideas came from the same woman. She is the mother of psychology. Basically. And her two sons decided to basically be like, I'm going over here. Well, I'm going over here and fuck you. And the sad thing is, according to what's her name? who spoke to someone who did like a it was a really good episode everyone go listen to it but apparently a big thing was translation is because they, they would give credit to her in the footnotes which was very common in papers like that yeah but when the papers would get translated the footnotes wouldn't oh so it wasn't necessarily an intentional erasure but just bullshit yeah dumb bullshit okay so back- welcome to her story yeah, right so back to this or um kleinian freudian and then independent was the third branch okay um these debates finally ceased with an argument on dual approach to instruction in the field of child analysis so basically they're like okay we'll we'll just use both approaches right um the school of kleinianism say that word 20 times fast no was was the first branch of provoke proverbial the uh, of the proverbial freudian tree why do we cover such complicated topics Um, when we decided to drink too much right um (laughs) so they view that as the first branch of the proverbial freudian tree to remain a part of the psychoanalysis because it's still used um the last thing she came up with was the object relation theory Melanie is known to be one of the primary founders of the object relationship theory. This theory of psychoanalysis is based on the assumption that all individuals have within them an internalized and primarily unconscious realm of relationships. These relationships refer not to only the world around the individual, but more specifically to the other individuals surrounding the subject. Object relation focuses mainly on the interaction individuals have with others, how those interactions are internalized, and how these internalized object relations affect one's psychological framework. So does that have anything to do with when someone responds to me and I start thinking, oh my God, what do they mean by that? Do they hate me? Yeah, it definitely does. Fuck. Um, The term object here refers to the potential embodiment of fear, desire, envy, or other comparable emotions. Oh my God. The object and the subject are separated, allowing for a more simplistic approach to addressing the deprived areas of need when used in a clinical setting. I'm feeling a little attacked right now. Sorry. <laughs> uh, but that was it. And then my cliff note was Melanie died of colon cancer on September 22nd, 1960.
That's not that long ago. No. And so this was basically. Which I'm sad that her death had to be a fucking cliff note in my story. This was almost a one-on-one on psychology. Yeah, sorry about that. And you, no, here's the thing. It was fascinating and you tackled it very well, especially considering how much we've been drinking tonight. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It was all about kind of the theories and what she came up right? with. And I'm sorry. Versus but what she, who she was. Right. And I'm really sorry. About That's that. not your fault though. I know. And that was actually one of the reasons I wanted to cover her more is I was like, so like, it's great that people are like, hey, there's this woman that did this, but it, it's annoying that they're basically like erasing the rest of her life. Yeah, like if like, she's... I get in scientific articles to be like, hey, this is what she did. But like what in all of her biographies, that's basically it. They're like, this was the beginning of her life. This was the stuff she did. And it's like, end. They don't even talk about how she died. Well, I'm like... Like, did she get married? Did, did uh, well, she have children? No, she had children. She had children and she got she divorced. Them. But it's like... Well, one, one article mentioned that her her daughter also studied psychology but she was on the like the freudian split of the tree so they became kind of um rivals what's the word i'm thinking of adversaries i mean yes but there's like estranged oh you know that's a good word but it doesn't talk about like her other like in it one article mentioned she lost two children, one from estrangement, and but um, but I could not find how she lost the other child. I and was she's like studying kids. Her kids are an important part of the story. I know, like I women know. are more than you know just their kids, but this I, is very important to the I know. story. It made me annoyed, but I will probably be covering more psych people because I find that really interesting. I'm gonna, but I'm gonna try not to overdo it, which is actually why I haven't covered one until now because I'm like I'm gonna get so far down that rabbit hole. That it's going to be bad. So I'm just going to try and like sporadically throw them in there. And I apologize if I was asking questions that maybe weren't that relevant. I don't know. But they because kind of were. I'm not a psych person. Yeah, I'll, I'll remember that next time and be like, sub note, this is what this means. If you could just explain it like you would to a five-year-old, okay. we should be okay. I might have some follow-up questions then. You know what I love, though, is like, on this podcast, we've talked about mental health and we both struggle with anxiety, depression, etc. Yep. And the fact that you went to school for psychology and you kind of you you stared into the void and you told the void, fuck you, I'm going to figure you out, I think is so admirable because I was like, I don't want to know. I, I, I just want to get through the day. And it's <laughs> fascinating. I don't think I could have majored in it, though. Yeah. I just want to write about how I feel. I don't want to understand it. <laughs> That's funny. But, so I mean, I, I, I've always really admired you for that because, again, you're you're grabbing the bull by the horns. Takes, you know? It takes all types. Well, and the fact that you've struggled and you really want to help other people who feel the way you do. And I've always really loved that about you. So Aww, love I you love too. you. That was really interesting, though. And, you know, it's almost like a different type of erasure. It's yeah. like era erasing the person and just focusing on their works, which is not a bad thing. Like, I'm I'm glad people, like I said, I'm glad people are talking about her works, but it's frustrating when I'm trying to do a piece on someone and literally all I can find is, oh, here's their contribution. They're removing the personal element and strictly taking the academic information. Right. I'm like, even fucking Wikipedia. Like, they didn't, Wikipedia always has a little section about people's deaths. Yeah. They didn't. 
Well, for Sarah Biffin, who I covered in the last episode, I so I found her on Rejected Princesses, yep. who had usually they're really good. They're amazing. He's amazing. Yeah. Um. Everybody, go check that out. So he had an illustration of her epitaph with the like last few lines about yep. how her suffering is over and now she's she's before God or whatever. Yeah. And I was trying to find the full epitaph, and Real I had hard. to Google. Yeah hard like to find just that and i'm like come on google what the fuck yeah and it's incredible how deep you have to look and sometimes you have to know what you're looking for because if rejected princesses hadn't made an issue of her epitaph i wouldn't have looked for it right i don't think we've ever really covered the epitaph unless it's kind of been handed to us in a way yeah or like i know for like sybil luddington it was because like i saw a picture of it so i was like oh yeah. that's really cool but yeah like usually it's because it's mentioned somewhere and then i'm like okay i'm gonna go look that up and yeah. usually if someone has an epitaph like that it's usually mentioned because that's kind of like a thing right thank you for sharing that though that was really interesting and i think um that's one of the first stories that we've covered where it's the focus is mostly, if not only, on the academic success. But in a way, I mean, like I said, it annoys me, but in a way, it's also it's super inspiring because she, like we said, she didn't even have a bachelor's degree. It never oh, even, yeah. me- it never mentioned if she went to school at all. I would assume she did because it's the late 1800s to 1900s. So I would assume she probably had through like high school schooling, maybe. Middle school, high school, maybe. Um, but like, so I may, maybe that's why they focus on like her academic success so much. But I, I do think it's cool that it's like, you know, she was in such a male dominated field. She didn't have the qualifications to be there. Unsexy finger yeah, quotes. Yeah, unse- unsexy finger quote. And it was, I mean, even today, psychology is still maybe not strongly male dominated, but like most sciences. And yes, it's a science. It's still male dominated. Yeah. You know. We're, we're um, all playing as, as women and minority. Ev- everyone's yeah. just playing catch up. because well, And the fact that she didn't stand down when they kind like when she moved to Great Britain and they were kind of like, eh, we're not going to look at your ideas. Um, the fact that she was just like, too bad. I'm going to keep studying. I'm going to keep contributing to this because this is something that needs to be done. Well, and she's like, I know I'm right. I know my observations are accurate. I don't care if you don't think I'm the right kind of person to be saying this, right? but I know I'm right. And basically it was she was extrapo- extrapo- extrapolating on theories that were already there or going, hey, in my observations, this theory is incorrect. So- like, And she had the balls apologies but she had the balls to call out freud and be like no i think you're wrong yeah you know we've been i've been watching mind hunter and kelly has been watching mind hunter and she's a bit she's further ahead than i am but that's like my dream job we have kelly and i are both kind of true crime nuts that's one of the things we bonded over initially when we became friends and what's so interesting about that show and i recommend everyone watches it it's about uh, like the dawning of the name serial killer. Yeah. I, I just watched the episode where they transition from sequence killer to serial killer. But basically, it's them learning all of this for the first time. And yeah, it's, it's the development of the FBI's behavioral analysis unit. And <clears throat> while a lot of this seems like, duh, to us nowadays, there was a time when people had to learn this. So we see uh, M- Melody, Melanie, 
I'm drunk. I'm so sorry. The girlfriend? No, 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 no. The woman you just covered. Oh, yeah, Melanie. Melanie. Um, being like, well, why don't we study kids as like a duh moment? But there needed to be people who saw value oh, yeah. in that and pursued it. And she was one of those trailblazers. Yeah. And, and she's the some reason of her we're stuff like, is still, Some of her stuff is still used today. Like, I'm sure it's been updated over the years. But the core of what she did, like play therapy and all of this stuff, is still around. That's awesome. But I, ne- I do not remember ever hearing her name. And you went to school for psychology. Yeah. So if anyone's going to hear about this, it's going to be Kelly. (laughs) Yeah, no, I was actually like, I specifically a while back, like Googled forgotten women of psychology. And I think of all the women on on the list, there was like 10 or 12. I'd only heard of one of them. Yeah. Can I just say thank God for listicles? Right. It gives me a name, a brief description, and then I go deeper. Well, like I said, like Anna Freud. I had never heard of her before. She's on that listicle, too. Me neither. And she's on my list to do later, you know, as a, hey, she was overshadowed by her father, but she did her own shit. And I'm really hoping that they have more of, like, her fucking life story. I would think so, because she is associated with such a famous man. Growing up as Freud's daughter, that had to be fucked up. I'm sorry. Freud was very odd. And... Lots of his questions. I'm sorry if there's any other psych people out there because there's still a very strong dis- divide between Freudians and non-Freudians. And like I said, in, in America, there's the whole Freudian pendulum, whether Freud is in or out. It's a thing. <laughs> okay. So it's basically whether the uh, How accepted of Freud's the idea are pro yeah. or anti-Freud. And yeah, okay. basically my one of my psych teachers yeah called it the freudian pendulum and it swings you know back and forth every few years on how accepted freud's methods are that's interesting but you know he sometimes he worked with people that were already known to be mentally ill and it's like how good can your theories be if you're not using like he's because you would postulate about normal people based on Someone people that already not, had issues and yeah. it's like eh. but anyways so i really want to know like what his daughter did so that'll be a later right. episode well, every I, like five i'll throw in a psych person there is this book i started reading and i actually had to stop because it was a little too emotionally uh draining but it was about virginia wolf and how sexual assault affected her writing oh yeah and there is a whole bit about her relationship with freud and how i'm not blaming freud but his ideas about mental illness and you know certain feelings contributed to her suicide yeah and her basically thinking this is the way I am and it's my fault. Just some some shitty things that we would definitely not accept today. Yeah. So I don't know enough about Freud to make judgments, but what I do know makes me think, I don't know about him. Yeah. I don't no. trust him. I could literally hit just have like an episode of me ranting on how I feel about Freud's idea, but we're not that type <laughs> of podcast. All right. Well, I think we're both sufficiently emotionally exhausted from that episode. So I think it's a good time to uh, talk about what we're thankful for. Who would like to go first? I mean, you went first last time. I guess I can go first this time. Uh, what do I want to be thankful for? <laughs> I mean, I'm thankful for a lot of things, but... Um, hmm, hmm, hmm. I don't know. I know. I love you, too. I'm giving her the heart with my hands. <laughs> I'm over here like, uh, um, I'm going to say I'm thankful for like my mom because she's really been there lately and 
I had a whole like stressor about not saving my time well so I had to like cancel something on her super last minute and I still feel super guilty about it but she was like super understanding and like super like no we have this other time and we're gonna go to see the Trans-Siberian Orchestra and then I'm gonna be having surgery at some point later this year we'll we'll give you an update we'll probably just take a brief hiatus hiatus of like a week or two depending on how much I need to recover um and she was like, you know, I'm going to come down for that. And I'm like, oh, my mommy's going to come take care of me. <laughs> but basically, I'm just, I have an amazing mother. And I know not everyone gets that. And I'm very thankful for it. I love your mom. And if you want to know more about Kelly's mom, you can listen to our Mother's Day episode, uh, Savvy as Fuck Sue and the founder of Mother's Day. <laughs> it was really funny. My mom was like, did you have to name it that? And I was like, yes. Yes, I did. <laughs> I hope she doesn't just ha- no. I hope the next time I see her, she's not just like, Emily, you garbage person. I, n- I never told her you named it. She okay, just asked good. me and I was like, yes, mom, we had to name it that. Well, because she was just so put together from such a oh, young yeah. age. My mom is, she was just so capable. I'm 28 years old and I'm not as capable as she was at 20. I'm like, like fuck. fuck. My mom like... She at ran the shit. I'm pretty sure she she owned her house, and I think she she either had recently sold her condo or maybe still had it for extra. Like, fuck. She had a realty portfolio, right? Like, I know she was like talking about the other day. She was like, she was like, maybe I'll get a rental property in Rochester. I was like, mom, <laughs> like Jesus, lady. You know what? You're still rocking it. So this is not quite what I'm thankful for, but you talking about your mom coming down and taking care of you, you know, when you're having medical issues or whatever, reminded me on Mother's Day years ago, I had my first of two hip surgeries wow. because... Oh, that's right. You did. I am in my 20s, but my hips are in their 80s. <laughs> <laughs> but basically on Mother's Day, I went over to my parents' house to spend the day and I was... I was recovering from my first hip surgery, and when you're doing that, showering and bathing is a fucking nightmare. Kelly knows because she had to help me bathe several times, (laughs) and that's why we have a podcast together, because we're that fucking close. Right? I'm going to call you if I need help bathing, but I will bathe you. I will (laughs) nooks and crannies and everything. (laughs) Nothing is too sacred. But basically, my mother spent Mother's Day helping me shower Because I was almost immobile. Right. Like, it was it was not and a good situation. I do think there's something to be said for... I'm sure, I'm sure in a way moms like that, you know, being able to care for their adult children. I don't think because they how ever grow often, out of right? it. Because I was talking to someone that has, has a very young child. Like, actually just, like, less than a month old. Itty bitty. Um, and they were... I was talking to her husband about how... Her mom has been up a lot recently, like helping. And I was like, oh, yeah, she probably, you know, it's her first grandkid. She wants to be around. He's like, no, I think part of it is she, he likes, she likes taking care of her daughter, like not the grandkid, her daughter. And I'm like, that makes a lot of sense because you spend at least 18 years taking care of this person and then suddenly they don't need you anymore. Suddenly they're in your position, however many years ago. Right. And so I think, I think. In a way, it's kind of nice for moms to be needed like that again. Like, I think they like that. So I'm sure your mom liked that for Mother's Day. In, I hope in a weird so, way. because 
<laughs> I I kept thinking like what a shitty way for her to spend Mother's Day taking care of her grown ass child. Right. But see, now I'm giving you a different spin on that. I love that. Thank you for that gift. You're welcome. But what I am thankful for is um so my boyfriend he has PTSD and will sometimes go through uh deep depressive and and anxious periods and that was another reason we kind of took a week off we went through a really bad state and uh we're on the other side and kind of stronger for it but i'm really i'm thankful that one he's feeling better but two i'm really proud of myself because i was realizing that i was having a really hard time with it and he knows i'm there for him but i was also able to be self-aware enough to take care of myself i went to the gym i went on walks i got out of the house when i felt it was appropriate yeah you know like i i didn't leave him when he was you know in crisis or anything but taking care of myself has always been a real struggle i always find it easier to counsel other people on their problems in an effort to avoid my own and they are so many and so far-reaching so i was really proud of myself for being able to engage in that self-care i texted kelly a lot (laughs) about how shitty i felt but and I'm grateful for that, too, that I was able to send you those texts and just kind of get it out because I did feel very alone at that time. So thank you for that. I love you. She's giving me the heart sign now. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been kind of an emotional episode. Yeah, we're going to leave it there. Oh, my God. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we are on Instagram at Pod. You can find us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory. Just please like and follow us. <laughs> <laughs> we almost talked over each other. Uh, we have a website, whiningaboutherstory.com. It's mainly just a blog, but go check it out. I post pictures and stuff. It's pretty cool. Uh, we have a Twitter, W-A-H underscore pod. You are so good I'm at that I'm just killing now. that now. <laughs> you um, got it. And then our email address is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. Go ahead and send us, you know, your history heroes, whether they're modern day or forgotten women in history. You know, if you just need to talk to someone, we're here. We love you. We'll listen. Because we know how important that is, as we just discussed. If you have a say their name, if there's someone in your life who you think really deserves a shout out, send them. We'll totally talk about it. And then please, wherever you listen, rate us five stars. It's super helpful. It costs you nothing. Right. And you can feel all good and fuzzy about yourself afterwards. And leave us a review. Tell us what you like. Tell us maybe what we can do better. We'd love to hear and improve and we love you. We love you and we love each other. Yes. That's what this All is. All the love. This is this this whole podcast is an act of love between two longtime friends who love the fuck out of each other. Yes. So so much love. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.